Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Brian Calvert. Brian is the editor-in-chief of the High Country News, a nonprofit media organization that covers the defining stories of the American West. Since 1970, High Country News has been fully committed to in-depth journalism that explores the complex relationships between the West communities, business interests, and the natural world. In our current media climate that seems to celebrate surface-level, hastily written news stories, High Country News remains committed to long-form, well-researched, and nuanced explorations of complicated issues. Brian is a fourth-generation Wyoming native who grew up in Pinedale at the base of the spectacular Wind River mountain range. A blue-collar upbringing, a stint in the Army, time working in the oil fields, and years spent overseas as a foreign correspondent have given Brian a unique and valuable perspective into the relationship between people and place. This depth of experience allows Brian to approach Western issues with a curious, patient, and balanced style that's becoming more and more rare in today's media. I was on Colorado's Western Slope for work and stopped by the High Country News office in Paonia to chat with Brian. We had a fascinating conversation about the history of the High Country News and how its commitment to in-depth journalism is more important now than ever. We discussed Brian's upbringing in Wyoming and why he chose to pursue journalism as a career. We talked about his time spent as a foreign correspondent in places like Cambodia, China, and Afghanistan, as well as the lessons he learned from spending time in such intense and sometimes dangerous environments. And as you've come to expect, we discussed his favorite books, authors, and places in the American West. There's a lot to learn in this episode, so please check out the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Also, visit the High Country News website or order a print subscription. Brian and his team are doing important work that deserves support from thoughtful, curious folks, just like the listeners of this podcast. Hope you enjoy. The way I start out these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, and they ask, what do you do? How do you answer that? Hmm. Well, I would say I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News. Yeah. Pretty, that's a pretty obvious answer. Um, I think of myself as a writer also. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of depending on who I talk to, I might, I might uh, describe myself that way. Uh, or an aspiring poet also. So oh, nice. I, well, I, want to, I want to dive into all of that. <laughs> yeah. um, just to give some people context who don't know about High Country News, I think most people who listen to this do, but can you talk a little bit about High Country News, mm-hmm. how it came to be, the history of it? Yeah. Um, that question is a question that High Country News as a magazine always asks itself. Uh, essentially, I like to say that we are a an award-winning magazine that tells the ongoing story of the modern American West. Uh, we cover 11 Western states and Alaska, and we generally talk about the environment or the natural resources or the places that people love about the West uh, and the, the bigger issues that drive decisions about um, life in the West. Got it. And so when was the High Country News uh, founded? High Country News was founded in Lander, Wyoming in 1970 and moved to Paonia, Colorado, where we are right now, in 1983. 
And when, there's a there's a story about that, right? I mean, it, is it, I was reading online that uh-huh. in '83, basically everybody in Lander bailed on the operation. Is that what happened? Uh, yeah, it sort of it started as a very small environmental magazine about the Intermountain West, and it was always a nonprofit. And I think it just wasn't quite making it in Wyoming, and there was. And I'm hazy about this, actually. This is the second time this has come up this week. <laughs> this week. <laughs> well, I did, I, <clears throat> I did re, uh interview with um, Crested Butte Radio, and oh, they cool. asked me something similar. Oh, no, it was a, it was a CC student, actually. She's oh, doing cool. a history project. Nice. I should meet Abigail if she's around. Um, so there was also a car accident at some point in its early history that really – um, it killed a number of people who were involved with the publication. Oh, wow. And so some of its critical mass sort of declined. And sure. so the board had to make a decision of whether I think to either not continue it or move it. And they could either move it to Missoula, Montana, where some folks were interested in taking it on, or they could move it to this little town in Colorado called Paonia, where a married couple named Ed and Betsy Marston could take it on. Um, and Ed and Betsy are still in town. Uh, Betsy still edits the opinion service writers on the range. Yep. She still writes the back page of the magazine, Heard Around the West. Um, she kind of uh, is a Zumba yoga <laughs> walk she everywhere. Funny? Yeah, she's funny. She's that, acerbic. That back page is <laughs> yeah. always hilarious. Yeah. She's read. funny. Uh, <clears throat> she doesn't have a filter. <laughs> um, so she's a very straight shooter uh, with a very wry sense of humor and a very, very deep knowledge of the West. Um, although her and Ed are from New York. So they oh, really? moved out from New York uh, to Paonia and they started a newspaper out here. And so they were publishing a sort of mostly local newspaper out of Paonia. And they kind of took what they learned there, absorbed the high country news, and built it out over over time, mm-hmm. over um, oh, almost twenty years. I should know my history wow. better, actually. Yeah. No, um, and then they then it was um, taken over by the current publisher, uh, who's Paul Larmer, who started as an intern. So wow. it has a really deep, deep, long history there. Sure. Continuity, I guess, is what. Definitely. So, can you talk a little bit about how it is funded? You mentioned that it's a nonprofit. Uh Um, Can you just talk about that model? Yeah, Um, we have actually we have a model that is like the envy of any startup online new journalism outfit, uh, which is that we are not we do not get very much revenue from advertising at all. Uh, We get subscription revenue from about 30,000 readers and those readers value us so much that they tend to donate on top of their subscription to what we call the research fund. So a lot of our money comes through subscriptions and the research fund. And then we supplement that with um, grants and foundation funding. So philanthropic funding uh, and then a little bit of advertising. So when that, when that model started in 1970, hmm. was it 
different than the normal model? I mean, were there many nonprofit mm. publications back then? I mean, not maybe not specifically 1970, but was that yeah. out of the ordinary? Do you know just in the history of journalism? I th- I think it might have been sort of. Um, yeah, I think it might have been not common. It certainly wasn't common. It wasn't yeah. the way that you ran things. Yeah. Um, and the you know the they called it a paper at the time, but it, it took over like a Camper News Weekly or something that had a subscriber list. So it it definitely had like a subscriber model, uh-huh. but then building in that nonprofit aspect, um, I think was not that common. Uh, analogs today are uh, Mother Jones, for example, is a nonprofit, so they're sort of they get donations and stuff. And there are there are a number of them these days, but I think that High Country News has a weird mix, a mixed model that is really kind of stable, actually. So, what, in your opinion, what advantages does that give you guys? I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's some obvious ones I'm thinking of, but but. Why is that a why is that a benefit over over some more other like for profit? Well, the you're not driven by a profit motive, so it's mission oriented. Uh, so, being very very dedicated to independent journalism that helps people make sense of the West, um, it helps you build a community when you're uh, non profit mission driven. Um, we do have something in our mission that we want to inform people so that they can act on behalf of the American West. So there's a kind of public service thing kind of built in there mm-hmm. that I think sometimes is a little tr- trickier to navigate than just pure, we're just profit motive. We're just going to give people what they want to read and hope that that gets a bunch of eyeballs for advertisers to trade in on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so I think there's some stability there when you build loyal you can build loyal readers that way mm-hmm. through with you when you have a mission because there's sort of a shared almost ideology. Yeah. Uh and so that that stabilizes it somewhat. Uh then you aren't really mm, yeah, you're not really at the whims of sort of like advertising dollars which are very much in flux in the journalism world today online advertising versus print advertising. Mm-hmm. Where are companies putting their money? Um, a lot of money is going out of advertising in journalism, and that's a real problem for a lot of journalism outfits. But yeah, definitely. It seems like the world of journalism in general is just in a huge mm-hmm. kind of chaotic point now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, it's cha- I mean, I would imagine in your career, so how long uh-huh. have you been doing this? 20, yeah. 20 years? 20 years? Yeah. Uh, basically, I, let's see, I came out of college in 99. So when I went to school, there was the, or I got to college, uh-huh. there was the internet. There were these things called chat rooms that people got into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like a very new thing. Um, and then it's sort of just as I was starting my career, then the online thing started to become a, a major issue yeah. for journalism. So I was kind of right at the tail end of things. Uh, for this, the old model. Well, you think, I think, I guess we're, I, I graduated college in 2000, so we're about the same mm-hmm. age. Um, yeah. But you think, like in the old days, I just saw that movie, The Post, about Washington oh, uh-huh. Post and Tom Hanks. Yeah. And, you know, Catherine Graham back then, she was 
basically the queen of Washington, D.C. Right. For wealth right. and power. Yep. And yeah. that whole thing, I mean, they basically went bankrupt. You know, the New York Times right. is having a hard time yep. even keeping up. Yeah. And, and so it's just amazing to see this huge shift yeah. in, in not much time. Yep. And I think the last, the last 10 years have been even more of a shift. Yeah, I mean, it's it's genuinely a revolution. It's as important as the invention of the printing press, right? The the dissemination of information via the internet is that it's a big deal. It's not just a different platform. Uh, the way that people think, the way that people get their information, the way they read, their reading habits, all of that is changing. Um making podcasts sort of like yeah, the fact that, that this can happen. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really decentralized, uh, that, that power, but it's also decentralized money. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a concentration of wealth or power in information anymore. It's democratized. Um, but not in like this sort of utopian spirit of <laughs> democracy. It's just like, you can get anything you want from the internet Yeah, and you I tell this to my writers and editors all the time. People don't need information. They need sense made out of all the information that is available to them. Mm -hmm. And so I push for what I call meaningful journalism, provide meaning out in context and synthesis out of all this information. It's just not enough to go find a bunch of information. People are awash in it. That doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't, doesn't do them any good to give them more information, no matter how hard you work at getting it, because you might interview people or have a particular uh, lens on something or an angle to a story and, you know, or have a new development or someone who trusts you enough to tell you something that maybe they wouldn't tell someone else. You can have all of that, but if you don't use that to help make sense of a lot of other disparate pieces of information, then you really are, um, exposing yourself to the dangers of that democratized internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can instead take another step and be fair and honest with people, um, but give some synthesis, you yeah. know, um, that really helps readers stay with you because they can, they know they can go to you to kind of make sense of what's happening in Washington or what the department of interior is up to, um, what the fish and wildlife service is up to, you know, there's, you can give them information, but you need to put it in context so that they they can start to connect a lot of other pieces of information. So So high country news, the the reason I like it, or one of the many reasons I like it is that it is very, very in depth. It's, Mm -hmm. um, very substantive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's, it's, um, almost the exact opposite of what you're, standard internet news is these days Mm -hmm. and it seems like people's attention and their interest or their attention is being spread so thin that people literally they want to get news from twitter from from a you know 160 character that's what they want so how do you how do you compete with that or how do you um i guess a better question is how do you avoid falling into the trap of this quick surface level nonsense yeah uh Basically, I think what happened was High Country News failed to adapt at the time when everyone was sort of 
they were they were early adopting or they were changing their models because it just looked like everything was going down the drain. People were just going to read stuff online. You needed to aggregate. You needed to get as much de- uh, as much content mm-hmm. in front of them as possible for them to stick with you. Mm-hmm. And high country news just didn't do that. Um, I don't think for a very strategic reason other than that it's just very small and it's always kind of focused on really nitty-gritty details. So why change that? Um, and then it, in doing that, it sort of placed itself on the other side of this backlash to all that frenzied information and aggregation, uh, which we're seeing now. And so I think I'll, smart, engaged people out there, in our case around the West and beyond that, but they're starting to realize that they're not getting the information or the meaning that they need out of what they're reading online most of the time. Um, So while a vast majority maybe of the population is still scrolling, thumbing, linking, clicking, all that stuff, there's a stronger and stronger contingent of readers who aren't satisfied with that experience anymore and are coming back to long-form storytelling, print publications. Uh, and so High Country News is kind of coming back around like bell-bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and so we're growing. We're, our subscriber base is growing. Now, we, we grow because we're online also. We provide this kind of meaningful journalism online and in print. And so more and more people are kind of learning about us from their own social networks and social media. That's one way that it's kind of growing. Um, but we also really deliver. So if something like the uh, occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon uh, takes place, and that's kind of something that we can put our stamp on, people tend to find it and they are very impressed with what we do with it. And we don't always like nail it or there aren't stories that always take up so much of people's uh, public attention or national attention. Uh, And then, so we just kind of like cruise along and the people who are interested in land management or water issues or wildlife or whatever, um, they'll find us. Uh, And then what we're starting to do now is also adapt to a reality which says there are major issues of inequality and injustice that are not separate from ideas of um, responsible ecological thinking or responsible environmentalism or your love of the public lands or wild spaces. Those things are related to issues of justice and social justice and underrepresented groups. So where High Country News is starting to push now is to explore those relationships, find the underrepresented groups of people who also call the West home, who have not really had a big say in the, the future of the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in those, that kind of interface of just giving that really detailed information about the environment or natural resources, even oil and gas workers or drill rig counts, these things that make up the West, mm-hmm. um, wildlife conservation, ranching easements. Um, Those kinds of things are an important part of the West, but so is the major, major attempts of tribal nations to reassert their sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've 
really building that out. Or the sort of political demographic shift and its implications of a, a Spanish-speaking West. So many, many more people are growing in the Southwest. That population is growing. Um, and how in those populations do we find, uh, in those communities, how do we find these intersections of interests? What is the conservation principle of a, a, of a, a Catholic in Tucson? <laughs> sure. A Spanish-speaking Catholic in Tucson, a sure. Latino. Or uh, how do you sort of square that against the interests of a conservation, holistically-minded ag rancher mm-hmm. or a um, organic, non-GMO pig farmer or apple grower? Those kinds of people that are sort of typically in the dominant construct or the dominant paradigm of the West, they share these different values with other people too, and or or recreators. Mm-hmm. Um, talked about those folks too. Um, so where do these sort of conservation or and rural blue collar rural folks were like what I come from? How like <laughs> Uncle Gary, my uncle. Where do his interests intersect with some of these other groups? And often it's in this sort of like land or conservation types of issues. Why do you think it's, I don't know how to really phrase this question, but the all these intersections that are in the West, they all seem so intense and kind of raw mm-hmm. versus, I mean, but they're intersections all over. Like on the East Coast, there, there's plenty of intersections between people. But why do you think everything out here is as raw as it is because you know i'm from north carolina you grew up here so it may not be as in your it may not be as evident as it is to me but i remember moving out here from north carolina mm-hmm. and even the way people communicate there's this mm-hmm. kind of edge to it mm-hmm. that you don't mm-hmm. and there's a you know mm-hmm. it, i think people's motivations in north carolina are the same as they are out here yeah. but all, a lot of the bs is stripped away out here mm-hmm. yeah i think there are a lot um i do think about this a lot i think there's like a a plain spokenness in the West that comes from some of the utilitarianism that was demanded of people as manifest destiny pushed of Anglo settlement into the West and displaced other groups. So the sort of that push uh, brought, I think groups that were a little bit more just kind of down to earth folks and that kind of sensibility has kind of infused the uh, Anglo West. I actually at the magazine I talk about different American Wests, just so people can like keep in mind that there are these different layers. That's interesting. But that's a certain that's a certain part of the West that um, we call the kind of the legacy of conquest. So that I think that that there's a I'm reading that the book right now. Oh right, yeah, that's that's what I was going to mention, but. Um, yeah, I think the the way the West opened up and what it made available to people, certain people, uh, did make it possible for a sort of plain-speaking, underprivileged rural class of Anglo-Americans to just move in. Mm-hmm. And that sort of infused a part of the population. So my people were um, out of the dust Bowl, Oklahoma, really? Indian Territory thing, uh, and they're just very—I mean—they're just very plain-spoken, um, pragmatic people. 
Sure. And I think that's true for a lot of um, older families. So that's, yeah, this is fourth generation, four generations on two sides in Wyoming. So that's kind of its own. Wyoming is kind of where people ended up if they didn't have the resources to get very much further. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. so I want to talk about you because you've uh-huh. got a really interesting background. So you grew up in Pinedale. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. And you were fourth generation. Mm-hmm. That's just, whenever I hear that, it's just so hard for me to believe because I always say I was a Lewis and Clark of the Robertson family in uh-huh. 2005 in <laughs> yeah. Jackson Hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. how did you, you grew up in Pinedale. Mm. How did you end up in journalism? Did you always want to be a journalist mm. as, a, as a kid? Were you always a writer? Uh, I actually, uh, in fifth grade, fourth, or, it might have been fourth grade. Uh, I think in fourth grade, we had a substitute teacher come in, and I was a real kind of classic clown, smart aleck. And uh, we were supposed to write some poem about a color, and I remember I got in trouble for, you know, um, class clowning. And I got put on timeout, and I had to write this poem. And I just wrote some poem about the color black, but it was pretty decent, I think, and it was well-received, and everyone was... Um, or at least the substitute and the teachers and my parents, it kind of got me out of the trouble that I should have been in, that I wrote something that good. So then I think I just wanted to be a writer after that. Cause really? I, yeah, I got a real um, sense of gratification from that. So throughout fifth grade, I was writing like some big sci-fi space, basically epic actually. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that just stuck. And then um I went to high school in Rock Springs, okay. Wyoming. And did you move down there? Or we you? moved, yeah. The okay. family moved down there when I was in the middle of junior high, okay. basically. And um, I had just a couple of good English teachers that I don't know, that really just kind of stuck with me. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to be an English teacher originally. And I went to the universe. Well, I joined the army. I went to the army to, it was a first basically a first generation college kid and literally no one ever told me that you could just borrow money and go to school. Like I, I don't know where that failure communication happened, but I thought I needed to get some money together before I could start going to school. And I didn't have any, even though I'd been working since I was 14, I just never saved money, I guess. Uh, So I joined the army and then a year after a year of training and stuff, I was in the national guard. So I went to, the University of Northern Colorado, which was a good college for uh, teachers. And I was in the Wyoming Army National Guard out of Cheyenne. I was a helicopter electrician. So I would fix helicopters on the weekends and do my studies at UNC. And I just pretty quickly realized I didn't want to be a teacher. But I just wanted to be a writer. And then I also wanted to see sort of more more of the world so I went on a you know a student exchange program uh, I went to the University of Malta which is oh, south of Sicily <laughs> because there was there's like their coursework is in English yeah yeah <laughs> so so I didn't have a foreign language either but sure. I just wanted to get out there and uh, th- on that semester was the first time I never had to wait tables or something for a living. I just had six months off and I swore that I would never work in a restaurant again and that I would try to find a way to be a writer. But it seemed to me that journalism, as I took some journalism classes while I was on that exchange program and I was like, Oh, well, if I were a journalist, I could travel all the time 
and get paid for it. And that could be my job. So I went back and I kind of tweaked my uh, English degree to get a minor in writing. I worked at the school paper. I got an internship at the Greeley Tribune. So then I just kind of went down this journalism path um, primarily because it just takes you all over the place and you get to learn a bunch of stuff that you can then later write about. Were you an adventurous kid? I mean, living in Wyoming, yeah. there's plenty of opportunity for adventure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Were you were you kind of yeah. always looking for thrills? Uh, yeah. Yeah, basically. What kind of stuff? Uh, you know, like just little things, but just climbing trees and rocks and, yeah. you know, big falls and big spills, never broke a bone. Swimming in spring runoff creeks, mm-hmm. you know, just like treating them like a water park. Yeah, yeah. Um, freezing cold water, spring runoff, and just stripping down to your underwear and shooting down the creek. Uh, jumping off of bridges into the creek was another one of my big pastimes. Um, yeah, and then, then eventually that sort of turns into solo backpacking and um, – not solo rock climbing, but rock climbing and yeah, solo yeah. backpacking, that kind of stuff. So just outdoor, outdoor stuff. When the thing is, like I, I did similar stuff when I was a kid, but that's in Eastern North Carolina. Uh-huh. When you're doing that kind of stuff at the base of the Wind Rivers, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. it's a lot more intense. You know, a lot colder, a lot yeah. more wildlife. I mean, it's you're taking a step up. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, my sister and I, for fun, used to throw rocks at uh, moose and run from them. <laughs> So we were just kind of... I'm always more scared of moose than I am bears. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They'll get you. They'll stomp you. Yeah, yeah. And they're yeah, they're a lot they're a lot easier to make mad, actually. <laughs> they are. Because they'll just sit there. Yeah, they won't run off. Yeah, I've, I've been followed by one. It's one of the most um, kind yeah. of memorable experiences yeah, yeah. in the outdoors. Uh, we had a... a one, one side... My, my dad's side of the family were all ranchers. Okay. And uh, there was always a picture up in uh, my grandfather's house. His name was Ross, Roscoe Calvert. Um, and we called him Papa. But there was always a picture up in his house of, um, I don't know who it was in the family, but they had been out and they were pitching hay in the winter and a moose kind of showed up to eat the hay and charged him. So there, And someone was taking a picture and I don't know how this picture got taken, but there was like a, a picture of this moose charging this rancher who was a family member. Um, and uh, yeah, and I just always remember that. That's like this, yeah. this is scary. That is scary. <laughs> yeah. People think uh, moose are uh, sweet, you know, what's the bullwinkle or whatever. Oh they, yeah. 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 And they're, they're probably, yeah, they're pretty I really aggressive. Think they're scarier than, they're definitely scarier than black bears. Oh yeah. I think. Yeah, um, so how did you, so from college uh-huh. to foreign correspondent, uh-huh. how did that work? Um, I had a step in between when I graduated college. I worked for a magazine that covered the national guard because I had been in the national guard and that was in Washington, DC. And it was a pretty miserable job, but I was covering, uh, the national guard kind of, yeah, as a staff writer for the national guard magazine, it was called, and that was during the Kosovo airstrikes. So I was this 19 or 20 year old kid and i would go to the pentagon with this little press pass and go in there for the press briefings yeah and i remember like having uh ken bacon do you remember ken bacon and his bow tie he was like the spokesman for the defense department um yeah i remember uh getting a press briefing with ken bacon and having to ask sort of like okay so with this new deployment of airstrikes over kosovo are we going to see any more 
uh, Air National Guard fuel tankers deployed? You know, that, that was my question for Ken Bacon. He's like, ah, well, yeah, we'll see, you know. Like, kind of like moved on. Yeah, so but that was kind of how I uh, cut my teeth as a journalist was at that weird national military reporting level. And then uh, I, just, I didn't really like living in D.C. and I didn't really like that job. And I still had these this kind of itchy feet kind of thing. So uh, I had two, two options. Uh, it's kind of... I was going to go work in Oaxaca, Mexico as a photojournalist because I had some photography experience. Um, but then I met, I started dating someone and she was going to move to China for a year and uh-huh. she convinced me to find a job in Asia instead of going to Mexico. Okay. So I thought that seemed like a good idea and I applied for the first job I could get and that was to work at a newspaper in Cambodia. So I moved to Cambodia um, in the summer of, oh, you know what? Let's see. Yeah, in the summer of 99. Got that, it. So I must have, I graduated in 98. Okay, actually. got it, got yeah. it. Um, yeah, so the summer of 1999, I moved to Cambodia and I stayed there at this newspaper that was an English-language newspaper that translated its news into uh, Khmer, which is the language of Cambodia. And you worked side-by-side side with Cambodian reporters, so you were kind of training them. Uh-huh. Um, you worked side-by-side side with Cambodian reporters, and so you were like learning about Cambodia from them, and they were learning about sort of American Western journalism from you because Cambodia had just finished decades of civil war and had been um, given a um, kind of a new mandate by a constitution that the UN helped instill. So it had some media, liberal press media Uh laws, uh, which allowed some newspapers to pop up. And so there was a person running that was a philanthropist who wanted the Cambodians to have good news Got it. and uh, hired a kind of young Western journalist to go in there. And it's kind of a colonialist model now that I look back on it. But at the time, it was just a really great way to sort of learn how to be a foreign correspondent. So how was that uh, adjusting to life over there? Because I, I lived internationally for a year, but it was late. It was when I was like 31. And mm. it was just, it was in Costa Rica. So that's uh-huh. not even, that's uh-huh. basically like Eastern North Carolina. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what did you, it was a huge adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was 24 years old. I was not prepared emotionally at all to go into a country that was that underdeveloped and that um, traumatized by its war past. Um, so, I didn't adjust very well. I partied very hard, kind of self-medicating, well, a lot of a drinking. Lot. You hear yeah. that a lot with, with yeah, foreign yeah. correspondents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a permissive lifestyle, and uh-huh. so I um, sort of f- fell into that. I didn't really adjust very well, um, but I did learn to be a good journalist, and four, four years later left that country for China. Uh, where I, so was that post nine eleven? Uh, yes, yeah. And I, I was uh, on the night shift at the newspaper when nine eleven happened. We were just putting the because uh, it's twelve hours yep. basically difference. We were just putting the newspaper to bed. We were getting ready to leave, and uh, a plane had you know, as far as we knew, like a, an airplane just cr- crashed into the yeah. So we were watching that, and then that developed, and we had to redo the whole paper. <laughs> 
that <laughs> based was, on that news. So, so from, you were in China, and mm-hmm. then you've been, I mean, you've been all over. You were in Afghanistan for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. I, um, at first, I thought I, I, I wasn't really interested in covering the big Middle East um, story that was developing. And I thought that China was also going to be a big story. So I moved to China instead of Egypt or Beirut or something like yeah. that. Uh, and then uh, I spent a couple of years in China and just didn't really, it just didn't really feel like that was the right place for me. Uh, and my mom passed away. So I moved back to Wyoming for a while just to kind of, I'd been gone by almost six years by then. Um, so I decided I should like move back, reconnect with family, mm-hmm. kind of reassess a little bit. Uh, and I worked um, as a construction worker in the gas field. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, it was a roustabout. It's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I built uh, I built flare stacks uh, out in the Jonah field. So yeah. uh, those basically burn off the. So with this in like oh five oh four. So that's when I mean it was starting to pick up there. Right? Yeah, it yeah, it was really going speed. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was full bore by then. Um, Have you read the? The Legend of Colton S. Bryan. No. Right? It's by um, Alexandra Fuller. Uh-huh. And it's um, it's true, but it's written as if it was fic- fiction. It's just uh-huh. it's almost like a novel. Okay. But it, it follows this oil rig guy. Oh, cool. Um, and it's very eye-opening. Huh. I'll, okay. I'll send you a link to it. Oh, that's it's, great. It's, uh, yeah. You would really appreciate it. It's yeah. scary. Oh, I mean, yeah. So you were... Well, so yeah, so the oil rig guys, they're, they have the more dangerous jobs. Yeah. And then the roustabouts are kind of like, they take care of the construction work on either side of the rig going up. So they're like, sort of like lay, flatten the, flatten the ground, putting the piping and the infrastructure. And then the rig comes in, it gets built, drilled down, and then the gas or the oil or whatever comes out. And then it has to be connected into all that piping. Yep. That's kind of the roustabouts job is to do that. So out on those well pads, then I would take this truck and a crew and we would go out and we would build piping from these large storage tanks where gas builds up, uh, methane gas builds up in this liquid called condensate. And uh, then you have to sort of like run that gas through a pipe and into a, a flare where it uh-huh. can burn off. Yeah, you see those at night. Yeah. yeah so I just built those for a summer. Wow. <laughs> well, for part of summer. The first part, the first job I had was working on the... Uh, uh, the trash truck. So I moved myself up from trash truck to flare crew in a matter of a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, and that was a lot safer. I almost, yeah, I almost got drilled by chain, you know, trains break and think, you know, there's just it's crazy heavy machinery out there and it's just, yeah, I mean, you're just out there. Um, but that gave me a really good perspective on, um, kind of that side of, I would imagine that's invaluable in your mm-hmm. current work. Yeah. Being able to have been out there, not just yeah. for a day, but you were living. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, like so, I grew up with these ranchers and hunter outfitters and entrepreneurs and just kind of hard scrabble people in Wyoming. And my dad worked in the oil fields and gas fields, and um, so I just I kind of really understand that way of thinking, that way of life, um, and uh, those those attitudes towards liberals or environmentalists or whatever. Um, or just people from Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, like the, the town that I grew up in was Pinedale, and then that wasn't too far away from where I would eventually go to high school, which right. was Rock Springs. But when you're in Pinedale, you don't like the people from Rock Springs. And then when you're from Wyoming, 
in general, you don't like the people from Colorado moving in. And then I think if you're from Colorado, you don't like people from California moving in. So there's just these sort of like tribal xenophobic things that sort of, I think happen out here, um, which makes sort of allude to or uh, reference some of the stuff that you were talking about. But um, yeah, it definitely gave me a lot of experience there, but I wasn't thinking of being what they call an environmental journalist or, or staying in the West. I still wanted to go, explore the world and be this foreign correspondent so after i saved up some money from the gas fields then i went freelancing again and i like ended up in cambodia again because the re- i was doing some contract work there and then the recession hit and then so i just like used cambodia as a place where i was like i knew it very well i could live there and then i could travel around from there uh-huh. uh, and that eventually led to a job in afghanistan training uh-huh. afghan journalists so what was you look at all your international experiences what was the what was the scariest thing that ever happened to you mm-hmm. <laughs> are you going through about 30 different scary things in your head trying to or is it trying to figure out what is scary because there's a certain type of thing that happens when you live in it's like countries where there aren't big safety standards or human life isn't like totally valued. Yeah. Your baseline of what is scary gets adjusted. Yeah. I mean like it's, there are, I've been in like in the middle of riots or something like that. And that's like kind of scary, but nothing's really going to happen to you. It's also scary just being in traffic because it's just, it's just chaotic. So it's just it's like a low a level. Field. It's like yeah, a low yeah. Field. yeah just a, that's totally right. A lot of crazy stuff <laughs> yeah. going on. That's, that's out of your really, control. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never actually thought about that, but that is very similar. You're just kind of on edge. Um, and then I've been, you know, I've interviewed, I've interviewed people like Mujahideen, freedom fighters, whatever you want to call them, and that's kind of scary. I've um, once interviewed the former information minister of Al Qaeda, uh, sorry, the Taliban. <laughs> and that's not really scary, but it's a little bit uneasy. Um, and I was once on a um, convoy with, uh, oh, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> Basically, being embedded is pretty scary. So I, I was so. embedded in Afghanistan for a while. And the general rule of thumb for a journalist is you shouldn't carry a weapon. So you feel kind of naked. And I remember being asked by these soldiers I was embedded with, like, are you sure you don't want a weapon? Because we're going through Kandahar and Helmand province. It's completely unsecured area. Uh, There are ambushes all the time. You know, this is your last chance. Do you want a weapon? And... I just said, if 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 it comes down to um, things get to a point where I need a weapon, then they will be lying around on the ground. I yeah. don't need one right yeah. now, and yeah. that like satisfied them. They were like, "Oh, that's totally true." Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like if I'm shooting at <clears throat> at uh, Taliban, it's just because somebody over here isn't anymore. Sure. So, um, and then on that actual on that convoy, then we did actually have a vehicular breakdown in the middle of. Helmand province where there was major insurgent activity 
Uh, and that's just kind of scary, but nothing happened. And I've, you know, I've never been in a firefight or something like that. So that's a different kind of, um, fear, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've just been in, you just find yourself in places where it's just not totally safe. You don't know what's going to happen. And there's just, there's just always this specter of getting kidnapped somehow and like beheaded on YouTube. That's like the big fear, right? Like that would be <laughs> the, the worst possible. It's just kind of like, it's humiliating. <laughs> I was and just like scary. And I was just yeah. thinking about those beheadings before you said that. Yeah. So th- that's kind of like, I've never been in a situation where that was going to happen or it looked like that might happen or like, you know, I've never been like rescued by SEAL Team 6 or something like that. But it's just when you're living in those places, it's just always running through your mind. If that is even a remote option that I might get my head cut off today, uh-huh. that is you're, you're in an intense <laughs> yeah, environment. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it could happen, you know. And, I, um, and uh, yeah, eventually I just – that just wasn't – the kind of life that I wanted to have. And so I wanted to move back, back West. Uh-huh. And yeah, it was just, um, I mean, I say this all the time to people, but like I went out to see you know, how the world worked. And then once I figured it out and I just kind of came back, it's, you know, that's like, interesting because I would, I would think that there would be a, a percentage of people who get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, maybe they mm-hmm. think they're done, they come back mm-hmm. and then they're not getting that rush mm-hmm. and they, they want more. And they, I would think yeah. that was the adjustment hard when you came back. Yeah. Um, although I was never like an adrenaline junkie, mm-hmm. I don't think, um, I was a very curious person and I liked to ha- I liked to have adventures but I didn't like the thrill necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I've never been like a thrill seeker that way. Mm-hmm. Um I'm a little bit more of um mm, I just think I kind of like think of myself in this sort of like bardic tradition or something or you know, all the way back to Homer, just sort of a chronicler of things and a witness. And I like to see things for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found was after a number of years doing that, that I wasn't seeing anything new. It wasn't that interesting. So what's the, you know, yeah. what do you do with that? Well, that's you a know? wise perspective. Do you know <laughs> who Dan Harris is? Mm. He's the host of uh, mm. Nightline. Uh-huh. And he was a foreign correspondent. The reason I know about him, he's he writes a lot about meditation of all things. He's really oh, yeah. good in okay. meditation. Yeah, yeah. And right. so he's got a podcast. It's really yeah. interesting. But he was really doing the same thing you were doing, and I think almost got addicted to it. Yeah. And then when he come back to the states, he was looking for that rush. Yeah. And then got you know screwed up on drugs and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's that's tough. Yeah, people tough do stuff. it. Happened. It happened to a lot of people. Um, and what I did was. Um, I now meditate, but um, I moved to Southern California because of where my sister lives. Okay. And I had, uh, <laughs> living in uh, Sri Lanka, I learned to surf. So I knew I how to do. surf. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I taught myself to surf living out of a beach hut It's hard Sri to Lanka. teach yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like skiing where after <laughs> no. a weekend you can no, get There's a high, hill. high bar to entry. Um, but I got okay at it. And then when I moved to Southern California... Uh, I just made sure that I lived in a place where I could surf. And that kind of really did a couple of things. It sort of allowed for a little bit of thrill just to kind of be out there, a little bit of meditation, Mm -hmm. and a reconnection with the natural world. So sharks, sea anemones, dolphins, 
salt water in your eyes, sun on your face, wind, cold, rain. Um, that stuff's important. That kind of was a real, I think, an important healing process for, I guess for so. me. Um, and that's what sort of made me decide that I should probably, instead of devoting myself to international travel or conflict journalism, probably be healthier to look at environmental journalism or like the kind of writing where you're talking to um, scientists and um, kind of earth land people. Yep. Uh, I just thought that would be a lot uh, better way to go through life, actually. That, again, that's it's pretty impressive that you were able to kind of step back, detach mm. a little bit and see that. Were you meditating at that point? Uh, I don't think so. Just yoga and surfing, but I don't think I had really actively started meditation. People who don't surf, because I used not to surf, and now it's my favorite thing in the world. Uh-huh. And you hear these people talk about surfing, being spiritual and this uh-huh. and that. And uh-huh. It sounds like silly stuff, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, you're. I heard yeah. one surfer say that it's, Ocean waves are the only wave. You know, there are waves everywhere going through the air and, you know, small, large. But ocean waves are the only waves that are on a human scale. Mm -hmm. And so being able to actually ride this wave, it it is a – it is unlike anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, there's a synchronicity that happens with the natural world when you are able to connect with it on a – literally on its own wavelength. And I think that's an important part of it. Um, I also think it's just important as an activity, and I've done this in other ways too, um, to just go sit and don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's right. And you can't have a phone. You can't yeah. have music. Yeah. You're out there yeah. in the water. Yeah. And it's just it's completely peaceful. It is. We, I, I need to, I could do a full podcast just talking about surfing because I, I love yeah. it so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so from Southern California, is that, mm-hmm. is that when you ended up coming to High Country News after that? Well, so I was in Southern California and I applied for a fellowship to sort of learn environmental journalism okay. formally. Um, and that's through the University of Colorado in Boulder. It's called the Ted Scripps Environmental Fellowship. Um, no, Ted Scripps Fellowship for Environmental Journalism. Okay. That's what it's called. Okay. And I am in deep, deep uh, debt and to that program because it helped me take all of these things that I learned as a foreign correspondent but didn't have any way to use them. And then it just gave me all these like frameworks to understand environmental philosophy, environmental policy, environmental law, um, public lands law, natural resource law, um, and really like understand these mechanisms, these huge mechanisms that have like great, great bearing on the West because I had decided not, I decided not to leave journalism and not to leave the American West. Those are my two things that I really wanted to stick to. Um, and so learning and, and then just doing this sort of like environmental kind of outlook, uh, reporting and, uh, and that, that program helped me do that. And while I was in the middle of it, uh, a job opened at high country news and I thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'd been freelancing for a decade by then all over the world, and I wasn't that much happier <laughs> than when I started. Certainly wasn't any uh, richer than when I started, uh, but I had a wealth of experience and um, just felt very, very lucky to get a job in a place that covers the place that I love and didn't yeah. want to leave uh, and does it in such this like rich and detailed way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I also felt like I had a lot to offer 
the magazine. So it felt like a really, really good fit. It still does, actually. And so what year was that when you came? Uh, 2014. Got it. And when did you take over as the... Um, well, it was a, there were a couple of steps. So it was a mid-level job that I applied for. Yeah. Uh, that was called associate editor. Uh, and then within a, within a year, the managing editor, uh, whose name is Jody Peterson, um, suggested that I sort of take over because she wanted to just do more editing and less managing. And so I sort of stepped into the role of managing editor. Um, there had been a editor in chief sort of slot that they'd had open for a while because they were doing some, a different kind of mix. Um, and so that was in 2015. And then I did that for two years. And about a year ago, um, I just made the case with our publisher that I should be actually uh, titled and (laughs) salaried for editor in chief because I was running the editorial department. Yeah. Um, vision, strategy, budget, personnel, um, all of those things. Those were all my responsibilities. And so I, I thought that those are the responsibilities of an editor-in-chief, and it was much more fair to be called that. But yeah. I've basically been running the magazine for three years. Okay, got it. So in the last, I guess it's a year, year and a half now, there's this whole fake news thing that's going on. Have you guys had to do take any additional steps to um, – just kind of almost like an insurance policy against mm-hmm. being accused of being that because I know you guys have always had these extremely high journalistic standards. You mm-hmm. couldn't write the level of detail you do without doing that. Yeah. Has that changed the way you approach no. like fact checking or anything? No, no, we have, we just do in-depth journalism that you just can't argue with. I mean, it's the just, standard has been the highest. Yeah. All the, all the um, what has changed is that um, the, the campaign of Donald Trump and the presidency of Donald Trump has created in people a very um, obvious emotional connection to him. So his supporters are very loyal. Mm-hmm. And with that loyalty comes sometimes a bit of irrationality. So that what I get are letters from people who say that I need to stop um, criticizing the president. Well, I, when I went into the military at the age of 19, I took a oath <laughs> to protect the Constitution and basically the sort of like the founding document of America. Mm-hmm. And I went into the military because I thought public service was important. And I went into journalism for the exact same reason. And I still, still think that I am keeping my promise of safeguarding the United States Constitution. I do not serve the president as a journalist. I serve the American people. Mm -hmm. And I stand by every single day, every choice I make, because it's based on honesty and integrity. Those are like my primary values. Mm -hmm. And to be in an environment where those values are under assault is difficult, but it's not that hard to stay true to your, uh, you know, being honest is easy. You never have to remember what you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I have strong personal values and my staff is exactly the same way. Um, we write about 
a certain suite of things that people find important. And that's typically sometimes maligned as left. But I don't think clean air is a democratic talking point. I don't think that having a lot of like healthy animals running around of all kinds of different species is partisan. I don't think that's a partisan issue. It's just a value that I have and my readers have. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that value, you might not find a lot of high country news interesting. Mm -hmm. But if you do care about this place called the West, which is a very distinct region of the United States, you should read high country news to understand the big forces at work in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not afraid to say that, um, a presidential administration, either Democratic or Republican, if it's dismantling the safeguards for the things that I value, I'm going to point that out. That's not personally criticizing anyone who voted for the current president. Yeah. Um, my dad and I have discussions about this all the time, and we have civil conversations about this stuff all the time. It's still possible. Uh, what has been taken out of the American discourse, I think, is the permission for people to just disagree. To just disagree. It's like reasonable people can disagree <laughs> on policy. They should. Right. But we shouldn't disagree on what a fact is. Uh -huh. So, you know, if any, if a living being or a machine puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, I'm sorry, but scientifically, it's harder for the heat of the sun to escape that gas. That's why it's called a greenhouse gas. You can't argue about that. That's just a fact. Now, you can argue whether or not we should care. Yeah, yeah. We should, exactly. you, you can argue about whether or not we should try to stop it. Yeah. Um, or we can argue about how much that might cost uh, our society. Um, but to deny it, I... I I'm just not going to do that. Um, and to hear someone speak who's the president of the United States and to speak in a way that is very obvious to a lot of people, um, racist, I can't not point that out. That's just a, it's a fact that the, that language is being interpreted by this group as vitriolic hate speech. That's just a fact. Yeah. I can't do anything about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just got done writing an editor's note. You know, our next uh, feature is uh, it's all about the way that climate change is impacting permafrost mm -hmm. and what we do and don't know about that. Um, and it's a lot. And it's kind of dangerous when you're, you know, melting this huge system that's a band around the earth. Um, I can't help the fact that the president and his administration have defunded a lot of science organizations mm -hmm. and i can't stand by and not say anything about that if we're going to run a science story when the thing is it shouldn't be emotional because i mean right. he, they were it was defunded right so right big, i mean you're not it was defunded right. you're saying it was defunded yeah right i'm saying like if you're defunding the centers for disease control and the and nasa and the National Oceanic uh, Aeronautic Administration, NOAA, that studies the air and the sea. If you're defunding those things, and a lot of scientists say, are saying that those have long-term implications for the health of our um, people and for our science programs in general, 
I have to say that. That's just not, you know, I can't let that just go because it hurts someone's feelings that I'm criticizing the, yeah, the leader of the free world. So that's more where we get into sort of the culture war and these wedge issues and divisive rhetoric and politics. Um, I just think that people these days, because of some of the internet stuff that we talked about, um, just don't like to read something that they disagree with. Which is a shame. Yeah. Absolutely. I force myself to read stuff I don't disagree with. Totally. You know? yeah. I, I get your I get your magazine and then you know, you know, I think I don't know that it's the opposite in the spectrum, but I'll get the uh, Western Livestock Journal as well. Yeah. I'd say the opposite of High Country News is Range Magazine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. and because and I, I want to hear both sides sure. so I can make a choice. Yeah. And I don't think anybody should be getting mad right. because I've considered all the options and I choose one way. Right. And the thing is, what I've found is that, you know, I like seeking out other opinions because – Worst case scenario, it bolsters my opinion that I already have. Uh-huh. Yeah, Best yeah. case, I learned something new. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I I just don't understand why everybody's so uh, angry. But if we could figure that out, we'd. Yeah. But, well, I'm. I I think it's um. It's a big big problem. It is. And civil like basic civic engagement and civic discourse. Right, are the sort of some of the founding principles of our country, and those yep. have been eroded over the last thirty years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to take um, a long effort, a long sustained effort, to bring that back. Um, it will. There's. I always think about this because I'm from North Carolina, and the senator forever from North Carolina is Jesse Helms, mm-hmm. which people you know had this idea about him being is is far right, and some people say he's racist and this kind of thing. But there was a photograph of when Jesse Helms was in a wheelchair getting ready to die. He was basically a few months out from dying. Uh-huh. And uh, he was trying to get to a meeting at the Capitol. And Ted Kennedy was over there helping him out of the wheelchair. Uh-huh. And those guys right. would battle and they'd fight. And, yeah, yeah. But they had this respect where, yeah, they disagreed. Right. But they were going to get together and try to, and try to work it out. Right. And there was this respect at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And it's um, that's I sound like some old man. Like, oh, <laughs> well, no, we I mean, that's this, true. That's how it needs to end. Those guys, if Jesse Helms can do that. Yeah. You would think some of these clowns these days could do a better yeah. job of it. Well, yeah. And so, you know, the role of my magazine is to s- research, uncover uh, and write about the things that are important to the readers of my magazine. Mm-hmm. And we want that to be a diverse readership. And we want to be as inclusive as we can. But it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. If you think that environmentalism is a um, a leftist plot against your way of life, you might not want to read about all this stuff. But on the other hand, if if you're open-minded, yeah, you might want to figure out what people all – what's all the fuss. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, so my dad reads my magazine and we don't – agree on maybe some of the um, values of sort of like where I'm com- where, where the magazine's coming from. Um, you know, my dad thinks that um, wolves should be extirpated and, uh, you know, a basic centrist position of my magazine is like, well, let's hear both sides. What is it actually costing ranchers? Are they kind of f- 
full of BS on how much it's actually costing them. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an argument to be made that if you are going to use the natural resources of the national forest, which are also mine, uh, that I should have a say in whether or not um, you get compensated when a wolf kills your cow? That's just a debate we can yeah, have. Yeah, it's just something you need to – the conversation needs to be – Right. Or, or that place. like you know, we should point out the extremist behavior of, a, of um, wildlife advocacy groups who dox, shame, or otherwise harass ranchers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's unacceptable behavior that should be pointed out as well. Agreed. And uh, so uh, you know, the magazine tries to stick to that, um, but it does, you know, does kind of get a label for being um, left. Well, the, the reality is, and you know this a lot better than I do, it's all extremely complicated. There is no right answer, mm-hmm. and it, ne- everybody's never going to be pleased. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is just be open-minded, it, uh, take in as much information as possible. That's what I try to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, just listen. I don't know. I mean, it's it seems pretty – it's <laughs> yeah. hard even for me who is yeah. curious and interested in this stuff and wants to – I'd love to have my mind. I love having my mind changed. Yeah. 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 You know, um, but I think, I think you guys are doing a great job and I don't agree with every single thing you write, sure. but you know, I don't, I don't look at internet news. I consider it a good day. If I didn't look at news, I have a yeah. little checklist uh-huh. and there are four things I need to do every day. And one of them is don't look at internet news and I only read books and I read long in depth magazine articles uh-huh. like what you guys. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate what you all do. Um, it, it serves a, it's it is a service a service to the to the country in the West. So. All right, we're already in an hour, so I want to. You need right. to get back to your work, but I've got some quick questions sure. that I've asked everybody. I'd love to get your answers. Um, yeah. What are your maybe one or two or three favorite books about the American West? Mm. It's hard. I really like Little Big Man. Nobody's recommended that. It's a novel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of written from the perspective of Custer's translator kind of deal. Oh, cool! Uh, but it's a it's a, it's a it's a satire. It's humorous. Making but, fun of, of yeah. Custer. <laughs> you just kind of, I just it's a little, it's kind of sophisticated satire. Which is kind of like this: the way that it's written, the language that it's written in is like kind of hilarious. The vernacular is really good, uh-huh. and uh, I don't know. I just I've always love that book. Um, I think Angle of Repose is really important. That one comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of joke about High Country News. I say that, like, you know, our readers are sort of like uh, Ed Abbeyites, and we, like, view ourselves as Stignarians. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think we should get away from that. Um, I like um, Bless Me Ultima. Mm-hmm. It's also a great novel about the West. Um, and, um, and I just read a lot of nonfiction lately, and, have you read All the Wild That Remains? I did. I read that, yeah. You mentioned uh-huh. uh, Stegner. Y- and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of a classic sort of approach to the West, and that's yeah. kind of something I would like us to also um, broaden away from slightly. Um, but uh, that that Gessner book is good. Um, you know, the um, Indigenous People's History of the United States or something like that is good to mm-hmm. sort of uh, – get another sort of vantage point uh legacy of conquest i think is a really important book um anything that um 
Charles Wilkinson has written. So Blood Struggle is important. Crossing the Next Meridian, I think, is an important book. Um, and yeah, I think I'll have links. Alternative to histories. Um, yeah, I think any book that doesn't any book about the West that doesn't traffic in the mythologization of the West mm-hmm. or its romanticization, mm-hmm. those are really important because it is. Um, a, I tell this to my writers and editors also, but the American West is not a place. It is a, a myth. It is an idea and it is uh, not a great one. Mm-hmm. It's, it sort of, it's rooted in manifest destiny in genocide, war, conquest. It's pretty nasty. Yeah. And you know, the, the fact that I work for a magazine that says that we cover the American West, I actually don't like that. That's why I say we cover the American Wests. And the modern American Wests, because that's a totally different place. And, um, you know, we're not all, it's not about cowboy poetry and um, railroad towns or something. You yeah. Know? Um, it's a. Or maybe that's 1% of it. Yeah. And it's an important history of that conquest for sure. Um, but, you know, the, the place that we live in now is like getting trampled to death by mountain bikers. And it's like a goo gel, <laughs> you know, this goo gel spandex synthetic fabric uh, wraparound shade West. Okay, that that's a place that we all live and share. Um, it's also a place where, um, you know, blue collar laborers are financed out the wazoo for trucks, trailers, and boats and are just like struggling under debt loads um, and work, work their ass off all week long. And maybe they don't want to hike and like exercise, (laughs) you know, over the weekend, maybe they want to get on something that has a motor and get out there somewhere. Uh, Maybe want to get on a snowmobile and they're willing to put up with the, fumes uh, i'm not i personally don't like to ride snowmobiles even though like that is a deep part of my culture mm-hmm. my um uncle and aunt were both big snowmobile racers and hill climbers and mechanics oh wow um but i totally understand that if you work with your body all week long and you want to get outside uh probably a motorized vehicle is a good way to do that yeah uh, if you stay in an office all the time and you're sitting on a chair all day, uh, maybe the way you want to get out into the wilderness is like with your body and like be in your body. Sure. Uh, I think that's like an acceptable way to do it too. Um, I, I, uh, like to hunt. And so I think getting out there and getting off a trail and like just trying to go be quiet somewhere and figure out what's going on. That's the way I like to do it. Um, but not everyone has to do that, you know. Yeah. So, um, but any, any book that sort of like disrupts these commonly held beliefs, mm-hmm. sort of, um, I think those are important. Well, I'll, I'll have links to everything because cool. the yeah, books people people love these book recommendations. Okay, I'll send you a bunch. I just can't think of them off the top. All right, of my perfect. Head. That'd be great. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? And they don't have to be about the West; just in general, ones that have been important to you. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah, think about um, it. Yeah. 
yeah. Let me think about yeah, that. Think about it, think about it. It. There's probably like there's kind of a big list of those too, but I can't really think of all their names. Um, so you you enjoy all the out the, the standard outdoor activities here in the West. Is there any kind of funny or weird hobby you have that people might like? I was talking to a guy. He's a smoke jumper the uh-huh. other day, and he said he's obsessed with Dolly Parton. That's the, uh-huh. that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I mean, in that vein, I have a. I have a blue healer dog named Pearl Haggard. Oh, do you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I just got another dog named Lefty, like of Poncho and Lefty. Nice, nice. Um, I, you know, I think it's. I think the weirdest thing about me is that I have these like these conflicting parts of me where there's um, a poet in me all the time. And then there's this other sort of like pragmatic journalist and they're just constantly sort of like abstract and concrete things happening in my head all the time. Um, I like, I like beautiful language. Um, and yeah, I really like poetry like, um, and formal poetry. So who's your favorite poet? Uh, there's a guy named Robinson Jeffers. I've written about him. Okay. Uh, he's a California poet that sort of, rejected the sort of modernists as they were coming along in the early um, 20th century and really wrote really deep, deep, truthful poetry about uh, humans and nature and the way they kind of interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Robert Frost. Yep. He's a great poet. Um, and uh, I don't know anything about poetry really. And so if there was a book of poetry that you, this is a good intro, this uh-huh. would make you, this will make you start to halfway begin to understand it. Is there yeah. a, is there something I should look up there? Wow. I don't think so. I think poetry is so... kind of go with what moves you. Yeah. I think it's, you just kind of have to open your mind to poetry as a, um, it's just like the opposite of any sort of like philosophy or logic. Mm-hmm. It's, it does something else like things happen in your brain, like simultaneously and in opposition mm-hmm. when you read good poetry that it just you sort can't of can't figure it out. There's no, yeah. thing, like you, you just have to let it. Yeah. It just has to sort of create something in you. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think, but I think if you, I think Robert Frost is a great poet to just get a little bit past his very most popular poems. Uh-huh. Um, and you just kind of see like, there's just like a deep philosophy at work. Neat. And his, I need his to do that. I need to exercise that side of my brain. Yeah. I'll say, I'll I'll think of some stuff and send you. Um, yeah, please do. Yeah, I have a. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, where is your favorite location in the West? Is there one spot that sticks out? Mm. And I think um, that Canyon Country of Southeast Utah. Yeah, that's amazing. It is. I mean, it really is. And I'm going to Moab next week. Yeah. I can't wait. It's it's just incredible, and it just is to like, see like unlike anywhere else. Yeah, and you can see just deep time, mm-hmm. and uh, just big bright starry skies, and you can sleep outside, mm-hmm. and you know, um, there's like all the the ways that the wind has carved the rock and the hoodoos and these little concavities, and you can just kind of imagine. Um, the Utes or the other uh, tribes just moving through there. So you can just really feel yourself a part of like this yep. really long, long, um, contiguous sort of 
life, you know. It's a vicious I mean, landscape, too. Yeah. Completely. I've been there and thought, you know, I've been to a lot of crazy places, glaciers, and, uh-huh. and I, being alone in canyon country, yeah. I've thought, you know, if I broke my leg now, yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, totally. a glacier, at least you could build a snow cave or something <laughs> yeah. that last a few yeah, days, yeah. but uh-huh. down there, you're done. Yeah. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think just to, because you have two ears and one mouth, just to to listen twice as much as you talk. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one for everybody, That's my especially journalists. Yeah. Um, and then finally, if you could make a request of the people who listen to this podcast, and it's mm. just people who love the American West, mm-hmm. probably a lot of people who read your magazine, mm-hmm. um, is or offer some wisdom. Just mm. is there something you would like to impart to those people listening? I, I think that if, you know, whether they listen to this podcast or they read the magazine or whatever they read, you know, to take that a step further and try to engage in meaningful dialogue with people that you don't agree with. I agree, yeah. Um, just try to figure out where they're coming from and don't try to change their mind, you know, but just kind of listen to people and um, see where you can have an interesting discussion with them like on, you and your well, dad. yeah on things that you may or may not agree on but you where you can really kind of see where the other person's coming from and you know then just kind of understand that what what you're bringing to it isn't necessarily right or wrong it's just you that's great so how can people connect with you high country news uh yeah they can um check us out on our website that's hcn.org mm-hmm. um and uh they can send me an email um straight from there or um my email address is Brian C B R I A N C at HCN.org. You're on Twitter and all that kind of stuff as well. I'm off of Facebook. Good news. But I'm, yeah. Uh, I am a little bit on Twitter. Okay. I don't really, I don't really use social media that much. Good. That's I got the millennials working for me. <laughs> they like, it yeah. scatters. They do it. Brains. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, like emails. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. That was great. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam. No other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.